I can still remember my first kiss. Um, and the wonderful thing about my first kiss is it was with my wife, and she's the only woman I've ever kissed. So um, I guess I'm a, a one-woman man to the core, and uh, grateful for that fact. I'm thankful I don't have bad memories of other relationships. I just have one woman who fills all those thoughts. And uh, I can remember very clearly where we were when we had our first kiss and uh, ever since then as well. So very grateful. In God's providence, i um, not just been with one woman my whole life exclusively, which I'm thankful for. I've also been only with one church my whole life. So apparently it's carried over to my role as pastor too, as I'm a one-woman man at home. I'm also apparently a one-woman man in the church because I've been committed to only one church my whole uh, 17 years of doing pastoral ministry, two unordained when I was an intern, 15 now as an ordained pastor, and of course that's this church. I've never t uh, been an elder anywhere else, never been a pastor anywhere else, and God willing, never will be. Uh, depending on how things go. But there's lots of great things that come with that. I'm really grateful um, that I've had that opportunity. It's exceedingly rare to be able to say that uh, at this point in life, and I'm very grateful to say it. There is one downside, though. And the one downside is I don't have any sermons you haven't heard. Um, <laughs> So, you know, usually you go, you preach somewhere for 15 years, and, and then you take the step to a new place. And when you go to the new place, you've got 15 years of sermons from the old place that they haven't heard. And so when you have an emergency or you're going through a difficult time physically, you just grab a sermon they've never heard out of your file or off your computer, and you run with it. Well, I don't have any. You've heard them all. The good, the bad, the ugly, <laughs> the, the really early ones. I go back now and look at some of the ones I did 15 years ago, and I roll my eyes and I go, oh, Lord, thank you for patient people who uh, put up with that. So <clears throat> this morning, a sermon you've heard before, but I'm trusting uh, it's a sermon God wants us to hear again uh, for one reason or another, and I want to invite you to hear it that way with me. And try and re-engage it. You know, in your memory, you might go, I know I've heard this before, but try and re-engage with it. Try and hear it as new. I think it has a very important message for our time. I chose it for a couple of reasons. First, I thought I was preaching in the evening. I'm going through the Psalms there, and I wanted to do Psalm 14 again. I've done it. I did it about two years ago, but I wanted to do it again because it's such an important psalm, I think. I also <clears throat> wanted to do it this week because this week I began apologetics. Um, Parents, if you have a child, especially junior, senior in high school, you know this probably already, but I teach uh, what I like to call street-level apologetics to all our young people or preparation for university. Um, I've been doing that for many, many years. That begins this week on Wednesday. If you haven't talked to me and you're interested, let me know. It's going to be Wednesday evenings right before prayer meeting at my office. So if you're interested in that and need help with rides, there's no cost. Um, let me know. But in starting that, I wanted to do Psalm 14 because it has a very apologetics kind of feel to it. And I think you'll see that as we study together. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Psalm 14. You'll find it on page 534 of your Pew Bible. That's page 534 of your Pew Bible, Psalm 14. And please stand as we read God's word. The fool says in his heart, no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel 
would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Father, as we study these difficult but joyful words, we ask that at the end of our study, we would rejoice, that we would look to our heavenly Zion and to the salvation that is coming out of it when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven and all things are made right. Fill your people then with that joy and that confidence alone, for we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Part of my apologetics class, a big part of my apologetics class every year is talking to our students about the 20th century. You really need to understand, our students really need to understand that the 20th century was not like the other centuries of the world. In some ways it was. Uh, There was sin, there was war, there was famine, all those things happened. But the 20th century was very unique. Uh, More people uh, were brutally murdered, experimented on, or tortured in the 20th century than probably all the centuries uh, before combined. Um, This is especially um, ironic because almost all Western intellectuals at the beginning of the 20th century said that this would be the century of man, of progress, that we would finally shake off the foolishness of Christianity and religion and live in a new scientific wonderland in which people would live longer and longer, people would be happier than ever, richer than ever, and the problems of the world would be solved. And no one probably embodies this better than H.G. Wells, who began the century by saying this was the age of man, the golden age of our history, and then shortly after World War II wrote that the future of mankind was over and that there was absolutely no hope left for the human species. He did that, of course, because he saw the camps in Germany. He saw how many people in Germany and Russia and China starved to death during World War II. He saw the Khmer Rouge where thousands of people were brutally murdered and experimented on just for fun by communists in Southeast Asia. He saw the tens of millions of people dying brutally and horribly in that century. It was indeed, it was indeed the century of man. It was everything that man is, man wants to be, revealed in that hundred years, and it was a nightmare, a nightmare hard, I think, for us even today to fully appreciate. We still don't know how many people, for example, were murdered in China. We know 20 to 40 million people possibly were killed or starved to death in China alone. We know 20 to 40 million people starved to death or were murdered by the Russians. We know that six million Jews were brutally murdered, and then there were all the people who lost their lives in the wars and in the famines caused by them. There was eugenics. There was the extermination of disabled people. There were just tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. I I do this with my students because in an act of unparalleled stupidity, our society still likes to talk about the dark ages the age of religion as the time of barbarism. Every school child seems to know about the Spanish Inquisition that maybe killed a few dozen people, maybe a few hundred at the most. They know about the Salem witch trials and all the boogeymen of how religion is dangerous and Christianity is dangerous, and yet they're never told about over 100 million people murdered and exterminated and tortured in the 20th century by secular atheistic governments. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous to be insane. How is this possible? And, and when you look at the 20th century and you begin to study it, how do you keep from falling into complete despair? If you like history, uh, you know the 20th century is no fun to study because Uh, you will literally struggle with depression if you spend time there uh, because the deaths are so horrific or you'll just get to the point where you just see numbers as numbers and you don't care anymore, which is probably equally as bad. So I I think for us living now in this moment, uh, 
uh, as we continue to see war, we continue to see human trafficking, we see all kinds of things going on, and we look back over the last 100 years, it is extremely easy to live in just complete despair. Some of us have completely turned the news off. We just cannot deal anymore uh, with a 24-7 news cycle. It's so horrific. We have more information than ever before um, because of our phones, because of the Internet. We know what's going on. We know how much people are suffering. And you can actually get to a point, I don't know if this has happened to you. My guess is it's happened to many of us where your blood pressure and your mental health does not allow you to follow the news all the time. And, and if you know anything culturally, you know people all over our society are doing unplugged days, unplugged weeks, unplugged years because they cannot cope physically with what's, what's going on. As I tell my students each year, now just remember, as that's happening to you, that you're only being exposed to about 1% to maybe 5% of the evil that's going on in the world, and that God is exposed to 100%, 24-7. Every moment of God's existence, he's watching someone be murdered, raped, tortured, or abused in some way. And next time your friends, your family, or you're tempted to say, oh, God's so judgmental, he's so harsh, just think about what it would do to you if I put you in a room, wouldn't let you sleep, and made you watch 24-7 everything that's happening on this globe. My guess is you'd get about 24 hours in before you passed out or hit a red button and just killed everyone, including yourself. So God somehow manages all that and does so with amazing grace and mercy, protecting people, delivering people, doing all kinds of good things in it. But because of our news cycle, because of what happened in the 20th century, because of things that are even happening now, it's very easy for us to just live in complete despair or to tune everything out and live in some sort of like fantasy world where we're optimists, but we really have no reason to be optimistic. There's nothing to suggest humans are really fundamentally changing. And yet we might want to believe that so we can live in sort of a fairy tale world. So which do we do? Do we escape into sort of a synthetic environment? Do we just Netflix all day and try and pretend this stuff isn't going on? Or do we acknowledge all of it and become absolutely paralyzed and have a heart attack because we can't handle uh, the extent of the evil. I think Psalm 14 helps us with this by doing two things. In the first part of the psalm, uh, the author, David, deals with the optimists among us. He, He wants us to take a real honest look at what's wrong with people. Why does this stuff keep happening? And we'll see why in a moment. But then in the second part of the psalm, he also wants to give us hope. He deals with those of us who are pessimists. You know who you are. Um, Pessimists always know who they are. Those of us who are given to pessimism, because in the second part of the psalm, he says God is actually going to save people through this. And God is actually very present and very involved in what's happening and very aware of what's happening and cares very deeply about what's happening. And so there is here, I think, a balm, a a healing uh, for those of us who are optimists and living in fantasy at times and those of us who are naturally pessimistic and are just deeply discouraged. So look with me at those two things. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, this first medicine God gives us is bitter, but it's essential. God tells us what is wrong. Why is this happening Look at those verses with me again. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of Adam or the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Now, who is God talking about here? Who is David talking about? Who is the fool here? The fool says in his heart, who is the fool in this text? The very first thing we need to get straight when we study Psalm 14 is that David is not talking about a subset of people. David is not referring, I used to believe this when I was young, when I read this psalm, David is not here referring just to atheistic people. This is not a verse about your college professor who was an atheist 
He's not just referring to them. In fact, in David's day, ironically, there were no atheists. Think about it for a minute. This is thousands of years ago. Everyone worshiped gods. Everyone was religious. Everyone had temples. So David isn't here speaking of what we would call today a modern atheist. He's not talking about one class of people. In reality, there's a surprisingly small, my class, we always look at this, there's a very surprisingly small number of true atheists in the world. Really aren't very many people who even claim that. So David's clearly not picking out sort of Western secular people today who are atheistic that didn't exist in his own day. This rather then is an appraisal. The fool here is a picture of the entire human race, every human being. You see that in the verses that follow. The Lord, the text says, looks down from heaven on Adam's children, literally in Hebrew, the Adam, the children of Adam, the children of men. And what does he see? They're fools and they do abominable things. The language here uh, in Hebrew, uh, David knows this when he's writing, comes from the Torah. Remember, David as an Israelite king has a handwritten copy of the Torah in his own hand as a Jewish king. And he's reading it every day. And what David has done is he's taken the phrases from his Hebrew Bible that were used during the flood, during the Tower of Babel, and during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's taken those phrases that were used on those three occasions and he's written them into Psalm 14. But now he's saying, he's altering a little bit, saying this is true of everyone living today. There is none, he says, that does good. No, no, not one, not even one. If you think about this is exactly how Paul uses this verse in the passage you heard read earlier, Romans 3. Paul's making the argument that Greeks and Jews are both under condemnation, right? And he says, Romans 3.23, we all memorize it, right? All have come short of the glory of God. The all there means all nationalities, all races. And then he quotes Psalm 14 to make his point, as if to say, as David once said, all have become fools. No one does good. No, not even one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the first thing we need to understand about this, this bitter pill that we get in the first four verses is that God here is speaking through David of all human beings. Not just atheistic people, not just people who are unreligious, but all people. Second, what does God see specifically as he looks down from heaven, as it were, upon the children of Adam? What does he see? And, and David here expresses it with a, a word. He says, God looks at the fool and he hears the fool say something in his heart. He says, ah, theism, ah, theism. No, there's the ah, no God, no God. To make it sound a little better in English, we add a little wording, but literally in Hebrew, the fool says in his heart, no God, no God. This is the confession of faith of the heart of mankind. Now, again, understand, no one, no one in David's day said this out loud. No one. We have people today who say it, right? And write books. But in David's day, nobody said, I'm an atheist. Nobody out loud ever wrote a book and said, there's no God. Everyone believed in God. In fact, that was kind of their problem, right? They believed in so many that it was a huge problem. It was a burden keeping up with all of them. So David says here, notice that this is something that is said in their heart. We're not talking here about what you do outwardly. You may be very religious outwardly, attending services, giving money, helping the poor. You may be very irreligious, would never darken the door of a church. But what David is seeing is that it doesn't really matter all people whether they're religious outwardly or irreligious outwardly, are actually saying in their heart, ah, theist, no God. So this is, we might call it a practical atheism. And not an atheism you share with your family, an atheism you live out every day because you don't acknowledge God in your thoughts, in your decisions, 
You live as if he's not there. Maybe once in a while when you're in trouble, you know, you hear this in our society a lot. Well, I was in a lot of trouble, so I asked the big man upstairs to help me out. So maybe every once in a while when you're in trouble, you give a little nod to, to him. But you fundamentally live your life. How? You say in your heart, ah, theist, no God. Or certainly no God worth really acknowledging. And that mindset is foolishness. And David says what it leads to is corruption, abominable deeds, and no one doing anything that's good. The kind of climax of this foolishness, the sort of pinnacle of the foolishness that's in us by nature in our atheism, our practical atheism, comes to us in verse 4. Here's the stupidest thing you could do, right? In a sense. They eat up my people and they don't pray. David here is probably talking about how people inside the church, inside Israel, are behaving. The language is similar, very similar to Micah 3 and other texts in the Old Testament. And it's about oppression. And what David's saying is the madness is so great that people actually believe they can torture, imprison, abuse, subjugate believers, God's people, and get away with it. That's how deep the atheism is. That's the madness, right? The madness of being human, the true madness of being human is believing that you'll get away with it. That's our true, our biggest probably problem as human beings is our fundamental belief. It's one we just hold on to throughout our lives that somehow we're just going to get away with it. Everything in life tells us the opposite. Everything in life tells you that you reap what you sow that what you give kind of comes around. We have all these little sayings to, to explain it to one another, right? Don't dish it out if you can't take it. We've got all these little sayings. And yet we live daily in the madness that we can ignore God, live as we want, and nothing will ever happen. And the pinnacle of that madness is the affliction of God's people and of the poor. The universe is, as we need to be reminded, a moral universe. And what's interesting is you have all the religions of the world. They disagree on just about everything. They are not the same. But one thing, it's very fascinating, and I always remind my students of this every year, all religions of the world agree on one thing, that the universe in some sense is moral and that in some sense you are going to get back what you give, in some sense. They disagree about how that works. Obviously with Christianity, we believe it's different because you get the record of Christ. You don't get what you deserve. But even in Christianity, there is some sense of reward in the world to come. So, so in all the religions, they, they understand, we do as humans, that there are consequences. And yet we live as if there's no God and there's no consequences. And David sees the pinnacle of that in the center of the psalm. He says the, the clearest illustration of this madness is, what do you think you're doing when you're abusing someone who's poor, especially someone who's a member of God's family? Do you really think God's going to let that go? That he's, not, he's going to let you get away with that? And yet that's the madness, the practical atheism that is in each one of us. So to get better, to offer real hope this morning, we have to begin by facing the reality about ourselves, that we are, because of sin, naturally born atheistic. Not that we don't believe there's a God, but that we live practically as if there were not one. That we say in our hearts, not out loud necessarily, ah, theism, there is no God. It's an instinctive, committed atheism that we are born with as Adam's children. And what this means is, we look at the 20th century or our own century, and we ask ourselves, what's the problem? Why are things the way they are? The answer is, it's us. And it's actually all of us because of our sin and because of who we are. Some of you will recognize the name G.K. Chesterton. He was a very famous apologist, Christian apologist, brilliant writer, wrote the Father Brown series. If you've seen that on PBS and other places, he's a great writer, great thinker. And uh, someone in a paper in London wrote the question, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton very famously wrote back and, and wrote, I am, and sincerely yours. G.K. Chesterton. 
And he wanted to make the point that the problem wasn't just one political party or one racial group instead of another racial group. The problem is so much deeper and so much worse than that. It's not just the arrogant philosopher who says, I don't believe in God, or the businessman who cuts corners and fires employees so they can have a little more money, or the person who uses their position of power to destroy other people. It's not just one thing. It's us. The problem is us. And these four verses look out upon the whole human race and say they are fundamentally atheistic. They don't cherish God in their hearts. They don't fear him. That's the biblical term. Fear doesn't mean being scared like he could do anything at any moment. Fear means reverence. They don't reverence him. If we started reverencing God, this isn't going to happen in this life till Christ returns. But if everyone in this world began to reverence God, all of these problems would go away. You would no longer abuse anyone else because why? You would fear God. You'd fear judgment. We've been seeing recently um, several mass shooting incidents. And I know people in our society are very um, concerned about this, as they should be. And I I hear people uh, culturally sort of in the news um, saying, why is this happening? Why is it happening right now? It's not really something in the past. You go back 100 years, there wasn't something happening in the United States. And one of the answers is that we're raising generations of children who have no fear of God, none. And so when they pull the final trigger, which is always to end their own life, they don't think they're going somewhere into eternal judgment and wrath because their school and their family have now told them for generations, God will never judge. Either he's not there or if he is there, he will never judge you. And so you just do what you want to do experience your wrath, your rage, pour out everything that's in you and then lights out and there's no, nothing more, nothing to worry about. What is that? It's practical atheism at its finest. And it's what's inside every human being by nature. And God's antidote is the fear of God, respect and reverence, the understanding that he will act, he will judge. And that brings us to the second section. In verses five through seven, For those of us who are pessimists, and you might have liked the first part because you're a pessimist. Yeah, that's right. Okay, here's the good news. God is involved. Look at verse 5. There they, that is the oppressors, are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor. In other words, you would like to crush poor people. You enjoy it. But the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Notice a couple things about this hope that's offered to us in the middle and end of the psalm, right after maybe the harshest condemnation of mankind anywhere in Scripture. First of all, notice that God here promises to be a refuge to the poor and to the righteous. To the poor and to the righteous. Who are the poor? Who are the poor? Well, I think David has in mind here, especially, not just, but especially the righteous poor. Those who are walking with God. God has a great heart for those who are vulnerable in any situation. And remember, poverty doesn't have to be here financial. Uh, Don't just think here of someone whose bank account is small. This could be someone who's in an abusive relationship. It could be a believer in Christ in another country who's being persecuted. They may have wealth at home, but in that moment they're being persecuted. It's someone, it is a believer, a righteous person who is in danger of some kind. And all through scripture, God shows a tremendous interest and concern for those who are in need. I could give really literally scores of Bible verses at this point. I'll just give you uh, one from Leviticus 19. When a stranger, that is a refugee, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Now, stop there. Everybody in this culture abused refugees. It was the whole point of what you did. 
The refugees are the people you make into the slaves. They're the people you enter into the brothel system. This is what happens today in Europe. The brothels in Europe are funded, I've got to see it firsthand, by women from poor countries who are refugees because you can control them and destroy them and eat them up like bread. What does God say you're supposed to do when a refugee comes to sojourn with you? You are to do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. No one did that. No one gave the sojourner rights. You just didn't do that. It wasn't part of life at that time. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Bible uh, says this not just here, but over and over again. God promises to be with those who are in danger, who are being oppressed by whatever circumstances. He urges his people to care for them, and he threatens. He makes real threats against those who choose to live that way. God cares for those people. It is currently in our society uh, very chic, at least publicly, uh, to care for the poor, uh, for certain racial minority groups maybe, for certain causes. But what's interesting as you read the Bible is that thousands of years before that was chic, uh, thousands of years before we as a culture did those things, God was already very concerned. And so when we become concerned for people who are genuinely hurting in any way, we really are just entering into an ancient concern that God has had from the very beginning. Uh, we should not look at ourselves with such pride, consider ourselves special, because we care. God has been caring from the beginning, and we're just joining in, just in a little way, in his love and care for others. So God cares for the poor. It also gives us a picture that God cares for the righteous, the righteous who are living through uh, this world and its practical atheism. Um, God is with, it says here in the text, the generation of the righteous. Now that might sound, if you're reading carefully, a little contradictory. Didn't David just say in verses 1 through 4, there are no righteous? That no one does good, everyone is evil, everyone is basically atheistic. What, is he, what does he mean by the righteous? Well, if you understand your Old Testament, uh, and I've preached this before, I hope you've caught it, um, righteous here does not mean perfect. David is not contradicting himself. He's not saying that people, some people are righteous and some people are sinners and that's all there is to it. What he's saying is that among all these sinners who are naturally born with this atheism within them, there are those, there are God's people who are seeking to live righteously. That is, they're seeking fundamentally to walk with God. They're failing, they're falling, they're not doing it perfectly, but they fear the Lord. And this throughout the Psalms and really throughout the Old Testament is a very important distinction. Righteous does not mean perfect. Righteous means like Job, if you've been here for Sunday school. It means a man who is a sinner, who's broken, but who is seeking to follow the Lord and living in some level of fundamental integrity in that struggle. Not perfection, but some kind of integrity. And God, as God promises to be with the poor, so he also promises to be with the righteous. And of course, he's done that no more, nowhere more so than in the gift of his son in making us righteous in him. In fact, Paul, when he quotes this psalm in Romans 3, uh, kind of gives us the solution to this problem because he says this, he says, we're all sinners, we've all come short of the glory of God. And in that same uh, set of verses, at the end of that chapter, he writes this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the righteous here are not the perfect, they're people of faith. They're people living in the faith of Abraham, as Romans 3 itself teaches us. And so we have these promises. We have these promises that God will, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of all this horrific evil, in the midst of all this practical atheism, he will be with his people, and he will be with the poor. He will avenge himself on those who harm his people. 
He will avenge himself on those who harm the poor, and he will care and love his people even in their struggles. You see the threat there in the text. God does threaten, verse 5, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. They may think, people may think, we may think, I'm going to get away with it. I can do this. What are the consequences? I'm rich, I'm healthy, I'm happy. God says, watch that person. They'll be afraid when there's no reason to be afraid. They'll be in terror. Dr. James Boyce uh, put it this way. They seem secure, he says, the oppressors. They seem secure, as the wicked often do. But in their quiet moments, deep in their hearts, they sense that if this is a moral universe, as they suspect it must be, then they are guilty of many sins and will undoubtedly suffer for them. They are unnerved by this, and they shudder violently. All of this, the depravity of our race and the hope of a God who intervenes in our race, comes to fulfillment and focus nowhere more so than in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The authorities, the Jewish and Roman authorities, believed that they were crucifying a peasant rebel named Joshua of Nazareth. They mocked him as he died. They had no sense of threat. You feel that? They had no concern. I mean, you don't mock an enemy you're afraid of, right? You, you mock an enemy who you've got up on a cross and you have no concern about the future. No one who was ever crucified was ever became a part of history. It was so despicable that you look through history. Most societies, if you were crucified, the family wouldn't talk about you anymore and you couldn't be discussed publicly. We have examples of Jews who are crucified very nobly sometimes for resisting the Romans or the Greeks and the families would not talk about them or use their names because the shame of crucifixion was so great. So the authorities have this peasant crucified and they know that means A, he's going to die, but B, he's going to die in such a shameful and disgusting way that no one will ever talk about him. So there's no threat. So they say to him, you saved others. You can't save yourself. If you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross and deliver yourself. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then the robbers who were on either side crucified with him reviled him as well. It's the ultimate fulfillment of this, isn't it? The atheism. These were religious people, but the fundamental atheism in them said, we can crucify this man and no one's going to do anything about it. And no one can make anything come of this and no one can punish us. But what does the psalmist say? Psalm 27, verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh like bread, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So in the very worst moment of history, when evil is triumphing in the extreme, when God seems absent and powerless, God was actually there and brought terror on his enemies out of what happened there. Jesus is, you see, Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm too. He is the righteous one, the poor one, the poor suffering servant who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And yet in that very moment, when it looks like our world is not moral, where it looks like the atheists are right, and there are no consequences in this life or the next. In that moment, God is acting in such tremendous power. As you look around yourself this morning, where is the power and glory of the Sanhedrin? They're gone. I could go look up for you some of the names of the Sanhedrin at this point. You won't remember them and nobody knows and you'd have to look pretty hard for them. The temple they were seeking to defend is also gone. The Romans are gone. Their names are forgotten. The only ones whose names are remembered are the ones who are mentioned in Jesus' record of his life 
the Gospels. So they only get remembered because he decided to grant them some notoriety, and it's not good notoriety. So here was a peasant, powerless, powerless in the extreme, no weapons, no army, no money, no formal education, and he has conquered the world. And it was simply the most important moment in all of human history. Because why? Because Psalm 14 is true. God is in the midst of his people. And so those of us who are pessimists, and you know who you are, those of us who are pessimists have to go back to Calvary and say, no, I cannot live in that pessimism. Because God has promised that when people are being horribly oppressed, especially his righteous people, his poor broken people, I will be there. And they will find the oppressors, the oppressors will eventually find themselves in terror, terrible terror, and salvation will come out of Zion for the people of God. How should we respond to this beautiful psalm as it it winds its way through our hearts and, and finds its fulfillments in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. I want to give you three sort of practical applications as we close. First, I would urge you, in light of this psalm, to acknowledge and always acknowledge in all your speech, all your apologetics, all your talking to unbelieving people, all of what you say in your bedroom when you're watching the news and you're frustrated, always remember this. Our problems with God... And by that I mean all of us, Christians and non-Christians. Our problems with God are not purely intellectual. And they're not primarily intellectual. People will come to you, it happens to me all the time as a pastor and someone who teaches apologetics, and they have genuine intellectual questions, and I love those. If you have them, come to me. I love talking about, you know, how can we trust the documents of the New Testament? What does God have to say about this or that? I, I love apologetic conversation. I love answering your intellectual questions. But we have to face something. Our bigger problem with God is not intellectual. It's moral, and it's personal. And, and a long time ago, somebody taught me this, and I've used it ever since. To, I'll talk to someone about their intellectual problem, but then I'll ask them about them. And pretty quickly, they'll tell you, yeah, I have problems with the Bible, but the real reason I don't want God to be God is if he's God, I can't do what I want to do. It almost always comes back to romantic concerns, intimacy, money, things like that. We want to think that we're more complex than that, don't we? So we put an air on before the world. We have atheists who write all these great books about the questions for God, the problems for God. I have a few questions I'd like to ask God one day, as if if you met a being like that, you would have questions that you could ask, right? We put all that out there because we want to be seen as sophisticated modern people with questions. And we do have questions. But what we're hiding behind is that we have a deep moral problem with God. And it's real simple. He says he's in charge and I want to be in charge. And it's that simple. And that's what this passage is about. It cuts through all those other questions and says, you know what's fundamentally wrong with us? Ah, theism. You're, we're atheistic in our hearts. Not that we really believe it, but that we say in our heart, no God. No God for me. You won't rule over me. And so when we're talking as a congregation about people, maybe people we don't like, organizations we don't like, groups of people we don't like. We need to be very, very careful to remind ourselves and maybe the person we're speaking with that the problem in the world is not just that group of people or that political problem. The problem in the world is universal. Humans are practically atheistic, all of us. And only by grace, only through rebirth by the Holy Spirit, can that even be begun to be unwound in our lives. That's what's wrong. It's not primarily intellectual. It's moral and it's spiritual. It's not so much that we really believe there isn't a God. It's that we desperately don't want there to be one. Because if there is one, then we have to change and we have to obey. And our life is not our own. So first and foremost, we honor this psalm by remembering its indictment of our race. And making sure in all our speech that we acknowledge that second by believing 
by believing and taking it on faith. And sometimes you have to believe it when you can't see it, right? This is one of those great faith moments. We must, when we read this psalm and other passages, believe that God is, in fact, defending more people than we think. So I don't know about you, but my tendency is to watch news, to watch whatever, and to, to see what's going on and think in my mind, no one's being defended, everyone's being hurt, we're all very vulnerable, and you can see how the anxiety change just sort of takes from there, right? Your blood pressure goes up to 155, and you're in real trouble. But the Word of God says, no, that's actually not true. You don't see it always, but God is actually defending people all the time. He's saving people all the time. Um, sometimes we quote as a church, or you'll quote to each other, I've heard you do this, this many children have been aborted since 19 uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, and that's true, and it's a horrible statistic. I don't remember the number. It's a gigantic number, and it's awful. And when you hear that number, you're always just devastated, Right? You know another number that we don't know and won't know till we're in glory, but it's going to be a wonderful number? How many millions of children God saved during the years of abortion and defended and kept alive? Where the parents planned to do it, and God threw something. You hear these stories occasionally, right? Where a mom said, I, I had the appointment, I was going to go, and I don't know what it was. It was like a beautiful day outside, and I just decided not to keep the appointment. What is that? God is defending the poor. He's actually saving millions of children. Because we can only see a little part of the story, we see the ones that are lost. And then we go into pessimism and grief and sorrow. And, and look, that's right. We should mourn that. But we have to take it on faith what Scripture says, that God cares for those who are in need and that in many ways he is defending uh, little ones oppressed ones in lots of ways we don't even see. And that at the end of time, when the books are read backwards, we're actually going to see that all through our history, God was saving people. We know that there are around 6 million Jews uh, murdered in the Holocaust. But what's been interesting for me over the last several years is reading all the amazing stories of, of hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Jews who were saved by the courage of people, especially Christians, uh, there was an Anglican priest famously in Germany who for months was baptizing uh, 100 Jews or more a day as Christians just so they could get a, a little certificate to say they're Baptist so they could get out of Germany. And they think this guy alone uh, saved maybe 10,000 Jewish lives just by all day long. All he did was baptize Jewish people. He knew they weren't really Christian. He was doing it, of course, to save their lives so they had somewhere to go. It doesn't mean that deaths aren't important, but it's a reminder of God's promise. His promise in his word is, I will save many. I will terrorize, ultimately, those who oppress my people and commit these crimes. And I will make it all right in the end. And that brings us to the third application. We are to have here a worshipful response, even as we look at these dark realities. Especially have in mind here verse 7. In, in the face of all that's happening... The atheism and debauchery of mankind, God saving millions and working, but there's still being great sin and sorrow. What are we to do? Verse 7 says, you're to pray for the second coming of Christ. That's what verse 7 says. Look at it. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. What is David seeing? David, remember, he's in Zion, so he's not talking here about physical Zion. He's already there. He's talking about heavenly Zion, and he's praying for the day when, from heavenly Zion, the New Jerusalem, a trumpet will sound, and the Lord will come forth and make all things new and make all things right. You know, as Christians in the United States, we've not had to face, uh, up to this point at least, a lot of persecution. We've also been wealthy now for several generations. Not all of us individually. Some of us come from poor homes. But if you are a third, fourth, fifth generation American, you probably have had a fair amount of wealth for a long time. And I wonder if because of those two realities, the fact that we've had a lot and we haven't been persecuted, I wonder if we're the church, the American church, the first 
church in Christian history that hasn't prayed a lot, at least, for the second coming of Christ. And that's my third application. As you look at Psalm 14, you look at the truth about our race, the truth about our God who saves us and delivers us in the midst of this chaos, you should be moved, and I hope you are, to pray for Christ's return. Are you doing that regularly? Um, I think about three or four years ago, the Lord worked in me where I started doing that all the time. And, 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 and this is key for me, and I think it comes right out of Psalm 14. That's why I share it. I think it's important that you do that not from a place of pessimism. So in other words, I wasn't praying, this is horrible, this world is horrible, I just want out, so come back. But rather, I looked out through passages like this and said, Father, there's only one solution to this problem. There's only one way for the martyrs to receive their judgment of justice upon their oppressors. There's only one way to end this. We can work, we can strive, we can love each other, and we should. But there's only one solution. It's the return of Christ and longing for that return because that return will bring wholeness and peace to our world. But more importantly, it will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the moment of his return. The only way to solve this problem, the problem as much as we should work in this life as best we can, and I know many of you do, to love others and to remediate certain evils, the more you live, I think the older you get, the more you realize this will not be solved in-house. There must be a climactic, once-for-all rending of heaven and earth. Someone of unlimited power must appear who can make this right. Salvation must come from Zion. So pray for it. Ask the Father that the time would be shortened, the elect would be gathered, and that Christ would return. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful once again uh, for your word. You speak truth to us, truths that are hard to hear in the first part of this psalm, but you also offer hope, and we thank you and praise you for it. For those here this morning who are pessimistic, who are sad, deeply discouraged, remind them of your presence with them. Help them to see and notice it and to take new courage and strength from it. We do pray, Father, for all those who are oppressed this morning, for those who are being enslaved and mistreated in any way. We know that our world is full of violence. And even as we're praying to you right this moment, uh, your people are being oppressed and many other people made in your image who may not be Christians are also being horribly oppressed. We pray, Father, that you would judge and deal with the oppressors and that most of all, you would send forth your son, for we know it is his return alone which can bring peace. So we look to him and pray for his return. And we ask it of you, Father, in his name. Amen.